Anyway, notices over. We're going to get straight into the Mission Continued series again. Tim kicked us off, and he had a great acronym for ACTS, Adventure, Commitment, Team, Spirit. And then last week, Kevin uh, was talking about the Philippians, and he was talking about baptism as well. I listened to them both. They were fantastic talks. If you uh, haven't heard a talk on baptism before or you're interested in that, I just recommend Kevin's to you last week. Go back onto our website, check it out, and listen to it. It was spot on. It's perfect. And he knows a lot about Greek, it turns out, listening to that. Uh, I know a lot less than he does, but he was excellent there. Um, so do check that out. And now we're going to carry on. We've gone from chapter 16, we're going into chapter 17 of Acts today. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, uh, the man we're following, he arrives in Thessalonica. And he combines mission with persuasion. And I just want to give you a little bit of context about Thessalonica, the place. Uh, Thessalonica was the capital of a region called Macedonia at the time. And it had a population estimated at about 100,000. So that's like Woking or Beckentree, if you've been to ever those pla- either of those places. Uh, and it was located geographically on a major highway, east to west and north to south, which made it kind of a hub, a center for trade and philosophy. So there's lots of people in this city. It's kind of buzzing. It's kind of got a bit of a feel about it. And I, I just imagine Paul and his team kind of walking towards Thessalonica, just feeling that energy uh, that you kind of get from an urban place uh, as you're going towards it. And in that same city were many, many different religions, people who followed the Greco-Roman gods, people who were Jews, and people who were not really followers of anything in particular. And uh, for Paul and his team, they must have been a little bit intimidated by this enormous city, you would think, being men. And like I say, I listened to both uh, preachers, and uh, I just want to make a public confession, along with Tim and Kevin, I love maps too. So I haven't got a pointer, I haven't got a laser thing like Kevin, but I do love a map. So there's a map behind me, just so you know where we are geographically, and uh, I'm glad I got that out. I feel free from that now, so that's good. But this is where Paul uh, came to, Thessalonica, and we're going to read Acts 17, 1-9. So if you've got a tablet, a phone, uh, or even a paper Bible, then you can turn there. Uh, uh, <laughs> one day, those will outnumber the other, won't they? And that'll be, that'll be tragic. Um, but <laughs> from this same passage, uh, I got three points. And there's a long one, and then two very short ones. And the first one is get a grip. The second one is we will face opposition, and we will see breakthrough. And the third one is commit to sharing the gospel, even when there's a price to pay. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to read the scriptures together. Father God, we thank you so much for this morning. We thank you that we're able to come before you, and we thank you that you are you, and that we can rely on you, we can bank on you, we can put our faith in you, we can know that when words of uh, strength are spoken over us, that they come true. We can know that we can be set free, and we know and believe that you are God, and we are not. And we ask you now, come, send your Holy Spirit, speak to us, speak to our hearts. Come, come Holy Spirit, in your name. Amen. Amen. So here we go. Acts 17, 1 to 9. Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. When Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. 
This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Amen. So when I read over this passage, I realized that it fell quite nicely into three uh, major sections. And the first section uh, is all about Paul combining mission and persuasion. And I've made up a cheeky acronym, um, because we love those, uh, and it's GRIP. And if you say it quickly, it sounds like GRIP. So that's the purpose. That's the reason I've used it. So point one is get a GRIP, or get a GRIP, depending on how you say it. But Paul is an excellent example of someone who knows how to get a GRIP. And if you're wondering what all the letters mean, this is what the letters mean. G for go, R for reason, E for explain, P for prove, and P for proclaim. So we're going to work through the acronym and the story at the same time and look at what Paul does. So the first thing he does is go. He goes to Thessalonica. It's part of his second missionary journey, and he has listened carefully to the Holy Spirit. Paul he doesn't just whip round the Mediterranean scattergun style, just going where he fancies going. No, he prayerfully seeks out God and listens in. And you'll know if you've read these stories before that he'll go to some places and not to others. So he didn't go to Asia and Bithynia in Acts 16, but instead moved on to the next region. He knows where to go because of the Spirit. And when thinking this through, I thought, well, what if we did the same thing? What if we waited Every time, every time we went somewhere, <laughs> I didn't think I was that bad. Stop <laughs> with that. Anyway, um, the <laughs> okay, <laughs> that's fine. We could applaud him when he comes. No, wait, wait. <laughs> we wait, we wait. Anyway, he goes somewhere. He goes to a place, but he's listened to the Holy Spirit. And uh, and I thought, what if we did this every time we went somewhere? Well, you, depending on how long you thought for, you might not get anywhere, which is part of the problem, perhaps. But My point is this, he goes with expectation because he knows the Holy Spirit is in him, the Holy Spirit is real, the Holy Spirit is a person, the Holy Spirit has gone before him, and he goes. And I really want to model Paul in this in that sense. I want to go places with an expectation. When I run out of milk, I don't want to think, oh no, I'm out of milk. I want to think, ah, I can go to Tesco. And God might introduce me to someone there, and I might talk to them, and they might have a conversation about something, or I might be able to witness to them in some way. I'd rather go like that than just go to Tesco. So that's what he does. First of all, he goes, because of the Holy Spirit, expectantly to Thessalonica. The next thing he does is he reasons with those in Thessalonica. Once in the town, um, Paul does what he's used to doing, as we read in verse number two. It says, as was his custom... Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Now, Paul sees a a Thessalonian synagogue as his entry point into 
the town. Um, the synagogue is where lots of uh, big thinkers would have hung out, mainly Jews uh, at that time. And there were also, as well as Jews, devout Greeks or people known as God-fearers within the town. And they would have been ready to reason with him because they probably heard about him a bit along the way. And uh, they were prepared for it. And they were kind of, and Paul was prepared for it as well. And if you parallel Paul with Jesus, if you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you notice that Jesus actually did a very similar thing. He, he sought out those who would listen. He sought out those who had ears to hear. And in the past at Kings, we've referred to people in our lives who we witnessed to as people of peace. People who you kind of discern are actually open to hearing and listening to what you might have to say. And when Paul gets to Thessalonica, he's ready to spend time with people. He's ready to discuss over three Sabbaths, three weeks, as it were, the scriptures with those that are gathered. And like I say, there would have been a bit of uh, maybe uh, like anxiety, perhaps, going into that place uh, where he knew actually there would be some challenges and some people who really knew their stuff. And it kind of reminded me of a time recently when we were on honeymoon, because one of the things that Paul is really great at doing, I think, or I believe he is really great at doing, is listening to people as well as sharing uh, his perspective. And while we were out on uh, honeymoon, we, we went on a glass bottom boat. Has anyone ever been on one of those? I don't know why I did that. Uh, but you, uh, you do go up and down on the boat, and you look through the glass at the bottom, uh, and you see the fish, and it's nice, and the coral. And, uh, and then we were on this boat, and we were chatting away to some people opposite us, and they were called Lauren and Damien. They were on honeymoon too. And, uh, you know, you have glass bottom boat chat, the kind of where you're from, what you do. How are you? You enjoying the sun? How long ago did you get married? And all that. And we had this discussion and this kind of chat. And then we went for a drink afterwards. I think I had a cocojito, which is like a mojito and a coconut, which is great. And uh, we had this chat and we, we just listened to them for a while, didn't we? We just had a conversation, shared how was your wedding day? How was your wedding day? What was it like? Uh, and all that. And they described how they got married in the church. And they described some of the songs they sang. And uh, these guys, uh, we're, not, we're not Christians you know, self-confessed, uh, and Sophie and I stood there and sat there and sort of saying, yeah, well, we are, and, and this is what, what we believe, and this is why we chose that song, and, um, and that, this song and that song, and uh, it got to a point in the conversation where we've been talking for long enough, and you'll be relieved to know there was only one Kakahito involved, there wasn't a lot, uh, but it got to a point where I just felt like the Spirit said to me, ask them if they've ever had the gospel explained to them. They got married in the church, they sung the songs that worship God, they know they've done all the stuff that you've done. Ask them if they've ever had it explained to them. And so I did, and we got the opportunity to explain it to them. Now, they didn't fall down on the sand and say, oh, how can we be saved? That, that would have been, you know, the dream scenario. Uh, that would have been, Sophie would have loved that. I mean, that would have been great. Um, baptism in the sea, you know, like things like that. Uh, but uh, that, didn't, that didn't happen. But the thing that God spoke to me about in that story was that we listen to them, they listen to us. You, it's, it's reasonable, <laughs> you know? It's reasonable if you listen to someone, they will listen to you. So when you're witnessing over the next few months, just, just ask lots of questions. Spend some time reasoning, being reasonable and listening, rather than just coming in with the, let me explain the gospel to you now. Like, don't get there straight away. Just, just come after some listening. Anyway, this is what I believe Paul would have been really, really good at going into the synagogue. He would have gone in there and listened. Oh, you think this? Oh, you think that? 
we've done this, we've done that. Oh, we're not too dissimilar, you and I. We, we believe similar things. Let me show you. And that's where we move on from reasoning to explaining and proving. Verse 3, with the lead-in from verse 2, verse 2 says, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Verse 3 says, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. And after reasoning from the Scriptures, that the, the many of those that would have gathered would have believed that these Scriptures were, were from their forefathers. The Jews there would have gone, these are the, this is the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament today. These are very precious to us. They're, they're right. They're absolutely 100% uh, pointing us to God. And Paul again would have said, oh, well, yes, I believe that as well. But he does a fantastic thing, which you can still do today with people. Uh, he kind of shows them what we call a biblical theology. Paul would have gone back to the scriptures of the Old Testament, and he would have gone, uh, right, so here's a story um, that points to Jesus. Here's a, a moment, a type of a person who reflects Jesus, uh, you know, like David's and Moses's and other people like that. And, and Paul would have used the scriptures and the prophecies to go, this was all about him. Do you see how he filled this? And uh, if, you, if you put the cross in the middle of your Bible, as it were, and then you've got Genesis down here, and then you've got Revelation down there, you can go from end to end, coming to the cross from every point. So you can go halfway through the Old Testament, there'll be something that points to Jesus. You can be halfway through the New Testament, there'll be something that points back to Jesus. And you can do this. And my friend Sam T, who I think is going to get baptized, I think, is he? Yes? Yes, Artie, you can clap. Yes, that's good. I think Sam is going to get baptized in a couple of weeks. Fantastic guy. We just sat and read a bit of Exodus. We read about the story of the plagues of Egypt and leaving there. And we, we noticed all these things that just pointed to Jesus, all these things that are parallel. And that's what Paul's doing. He's showing them, using the, the Bible, as we know it today, the Old Testament, that Jesus was who he claimed to be. He explains to them how Jesus had to suffer. He had to die he, on the cross. He had to come once for all to atone for sin and how he had to be the final sacrifice in order to bring the freedom and salvation that we know about and sing about a lot today. And Paul would have explained that Jesus' claim to be God's son was backed up by miracles. He would have explained that Jesus was the perfect one, the holy one, the blameless one. He would have explained that actually if he hadn't died on that cross, then we'd still be facing the consequences for our sin. And if he hadn't risen three days later and appeared to over 500 people and proven to be resurrected, then actually we wouldn't have a hope either in having a relationship with him or a hope in the fact of who he was. He would have been able to explain, or he did explain these things, in a tense environment. I don't know if you can imagine being in a synagogue surrounded by Jewish people who know these scriptures way better than I'll ever know them, as far as I'm aware, who are hearing Paul say, basically, God's chosen people murdered their own Messiah and then tried to cover up his resurrection. Paul is bold as brass. He's got to be full of the Spirit. Otherwise, you would just run out of there. Like, you've got to be strong in the Spirit to be able to say to people who know these scriptures, this was all prophesied about. It's happened. You got it wrong. Like, you've missed this. Can't you see? It's a tense environment. It's a tough moment for them to go through. And meanwhile, he's proving it all using the scriptures. Now, not only would have Paul had those scriptures, there was historical evidence, which we still have available today for Jesus' deity, his life, and his recent resurrection appearances at the time. And uh, he would have even been able to refer to people who had met Jesus in person, which is something we can't do, 
but he had as well to help prove what he was saying was true. And if you're sat here today and you're uh, brand new with us or you're, you're having discussions with friends at the moment about Jesus or about the resurrection, we have sufficient historical evidence uh, both inside the Bible and outside the Bible from lots and lots of different sources which back up the claim that Jesus was who he said he was and did what he said he did. And we explore some of them on Just Looking, but a book I read recently, um, Sophie probably read it in about two days, but it took me about three months, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, has a fantastic uh, list of sources for which people that are much highly, more highly educated than I'll ever be have put together, and they back it up. And the guy who writes this book um, was in a position where he didn't believe it. And he decided to go and investigate, and he was a kind of an academic scholarly guy, and so he went after all these sources and rooted right down to all the detail and the ancient texts and everything, and came out the other side having no other option but to believe it was true. So if you're concerned that actually you haven't got the backup and you haven't got the academic uh, kind of background to, to prove all this, you don't need to. It's there, and this is really reassuring for us as believers, because we can go to these things and point people to them and say, look, I haven't done all the research, but there are people who have over the decades, which you can point them to. But for some, the evidence that Paul displays wasn't enough to persuade them. Jews, Greeks, men, women, it wasn't enough to place their faith in Jesus. But for others, it was. So what kind of happened there? Well, even when presented with facts and logic, some people still refuse to believe. And you might find that a bit weird, like how can you just deny facts or just deny logic in any way? But it's not such an alien concept to us in our culture, in our environment. Uh, let me give you an example that kind of highlights this. In November 2016, the Oxford Dictionary announced the word post-truth to be its international word of the year. I'm sure some of you knew that already. Uh, but I had no idea this was the case. But this word that they've cho they chose for 2016 aimed to express that passing year in language, and it was carefully chosen to capture the ethos, the mood, the preoccupations of that past year. And the definition from Oxford Dictionary of this word post-truth is this. Relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. To kind of break that down into a more understandable explanation, it's essentially a way of saying, no matter what the facts say, or no matter what logic says, as long as it makes me feel good, then that's good, and you or anyone else can't challenge what I'm actually going to say, or what I believe. It's a way of saying, I'm going to just ignore everything factual, and I'm going to go with what I want to believe. You might have heard it called pluralism or something else like that, but they've now got a word for it, post-truth. And you might have heard the word post in reference to things sort of being like post-match review after certain things. Well, this is a bit like after hearing all the, uh, the, the facts and all that, you just ignore them and do your own thing anyway. And that, that's a point uh, which people in these days have got to. And unfortunately, if you draw that way of thinking to its logical conclusion, you get anarchy. Because if everyone's truth is their own truth and they can just do what you want, you can just run up to someone, punch them in the chest and run away and go, well, that's okay. I believe that's fine. And they'll go, ow. 
but they won't have a response because how can they challenge that? But it, it just doesn't tie up. It just falls away. But it, this word, post-truth, describes the time we live in where people are willing to overlook the factual evidence just so they can believe what they want to believe. And the truth is, we can't force anyone to believe anything they don't want to believe. And I say this to people on uh, courses that we run. Alpha just looking at us say, look, we are not going to force you to believe anything you don't want to believe. <coughs> A, because we can't, but B, because that is not loving. To lo- force someone to believe anything is not loving. I was on honeymoon and I met a guy on a jetty called Supneil. And the way I remember his name is because I sometimes think I'm cool enough to be like, Supneil. Uh, and this guy was called Supneil and he was from Mumbai. And uh, he basically uh, was just chatting to me. I took a photo of him. I actually did that silly thing where you press, you, you think you're going to take a photo, but it was one of these really advanced phones where you like press it for a second and it takes 61 photos all at once. <laughs> and so I've got him in like every position. <laughs> on it, and then I gave his phone back to him. And so the, the point, but I got talking to him and I, I explained all this to him. I just had a nice chat with him actually. He said, oh, you know, I, I don't believe in anything particular. Uh, you know, I think they all add up to one God. Uh, and I was able to say, well, no, I don't think it works like that. Because, well, I said to him, I explained it in the way of a mathematical sum. Two plus two is four. There is one right answer. There can't be many right answers to that sum. There can only be one. And in the same way, all the gods in the world who are not the same cannot be the right answer. That, that can't work that way, because 2 plus 2.1 is 4.1. It's a different sum, and it's a different answer. And you can't make it work. And he kind of mused on this and kind of, you know, just sort of was there thinking about it. And he kind of went, mm, I, don't, I don't really know. But he heard it. He'd heard the truth. He'd heard the fact that, actually, you know, they can't, they can't all be right. There's got to be one. But I wasn't going to force him to believe it. I, again, great question to ask. Has anyone ever explained the gospel to you? You let me explain it to you. You've already had a discussion. You've already got to a point where actually this is on the table. Let's just explain it. And then you leave it and see if they decide, what they decide about it. There's no force involved at all. But if people don't want to believe something, then they won't believe it. Because they want what they believe to be true. And so they just justify it by living in a kind of post-truth way. And again, Jesus knew this. He knew this and he never chased after anyone. You can read the Gospels. He never forced them to believe because he knew that wasn't the solution. And he knew, Jesus knew that this wasn't loving. He loved people and so he gave them a choice. They could listen to him or they could walk away. They could follow him or decide not to. But coming back to Paul, he's reasoned, he's explained, he's proven the Gospel to the Thessalonians and now he proclaims the truth. At the end of the section, Paul says, This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He said, Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. Paul's mic drop moment comes in verse 4. He just proclaims it. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. He's got to the point. He's done all the other things in the acronym, and then he just says it. This is who he is, and he leaves it at that. He's bold enough to proclaim the truth, and he concludes our acronym, and proclaiming the truth can't be understated. Paul has great truth on his side, and if we can be bold enough to state facts to people, 
Well, then the Spirit will do the rest and convict them. Jesus also proclaimed the truth. He would make statements that upset people left, right, and center. We shouldn't be afraid to do the same thing. We can make statements which people won't agree with, and that's okay. But we mustn't be scared to do it. So Paul's masterclass in persuasion is complete. He does everything a Christian can do in order to persuade someone to follow Jesus. He goes to Thessalonica. He reasons and is reasonable. He explains the gospel using the scriptures, and then he proves it, and then he proclaims it. And we can do it. We can do all of that perfectly, but like Kevin said last week, it's God who does the saving. You can't persuade someone into salvation. You can't persuade someone to be saved, but you can get a grip. You can do all these things and then see what God does. So that's point one. Point two is significantly shorter. You'll be relieved to know. And it's this. We will face opposition and we will see breakthrough. So Paul has taken those three weeks. He's taken the time to persuade people and then the objections arise. Verse five to seven says this. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. Little did they know they were declaring the truth by shouting this all around the town. Those who don't want to believe Paul and his team, they're stirred to jealousy. Their religion has been challenged. The status quo is being rocked. They like it the way things are. They like the synagogue. They like the way that people look up to them and consider them to be pious, and they can't stand it. So they gather up some bad characters, you know, people with eye patches and funny hats and stuff like that. They get them together and they say, come on going to start a riot. How easy is that? It just seems to happen a lot in the ancient world. It's like, riot today? Yeah, all right, let's go. No, it doesn't, I don't think it works like that. But anyway, if you ever stir a riot up, just let me know how you did it. I'm curious to know. Um, but they go and get these people, and they try and pull out Paul and Silas. And this is what happens, to be honest. This is what happens to men and women who realize that the gospel is more powerful than they are. When people discover that you can't refute the good news of Jesus Christ with words or logic or clever diagrams, then they turn to force. They must stop it. And if you've ever read the gospel, you'll know that Jesus faced the same thing. They couldn't find a way to trick him in his words. They couldn't find a way to, to make him make a mistake. They couldn't find a sin in him at all. So what do they do? They turn to force. An echo of that happens in Thessalonica. And over the last couple of weeks, I've read a a book by a man called Brother Andrew, who also faced opposition. You might have heard of Brother Andrew. He he started the Open Doors movement, a movement where uh, they uh, took Bibles to countries that were behind the Iron Curtain uh, in decades past, um, and they uh, would basically drive up to the border, and they refused to lie. They refused to tell fibs to the border guards, uh, and they'd, they'd either get through or something would happen. And there's some fantastic stories um, in this book, um, uh, if you want to catch up on it. Or there's another book called God's Smuggler. I think you can read that as well. But he, um, 
he took these Bibles to Christians who were persecuted in uh, mainly communist countries at the time, and, uh, and he recognized the power of the Bible. He recognized the power of the scriptures of the gospel itself, and he faced opposition on, in border guards, in sergeants, officials, but also saw immense breakthrough as the persecuted church sprung to life uh, behind the curtain. And um, I took out a little bit of a mini application from this guy, Brother Andrew, um, when I was reading his book. And as I'm going to paraphrase it for you. He, he basically gets in his Volkswagen, drives up to the border, and uh, a border guard um, arrives to inspect his vehicle. And by this time, he's done this trip a few times. And uh, he's decided that every time a guard asks him a question, he will just reply with a mini-sermon, which as a preacher is quite a preferable thing for me uh, to do. But uh, here's a paraphrase from his book. The guard comes up to inspect his car, and the guard says, what's in there? And Brother Andrew says, flannel graph stories, which is like fuzzy felt on a phone background, if you're wondering. And the guard says, what are they? And Brother Andrew says, well, sir, they are flannel graph stories that teachers use to tell children about the Lord Jesus Christ because even children can believe in him. Because when a child is old enough to love his parents, he can love Jesus who came into the world to save sinners so that children as well as grown-up people by simple faith can have him as their savior and have eternal life and go to heaven when they die. One really long sentence is his reply to this aunt's question about flannel graph stories. And that's a sermonette he calls it, in a sentence. And I like that. I like it a lot. I like the idea that you go to Costa, you go to Nero, and you know, someone goes, is that your coffee cup? And you go, yes, this is a cup that reminds me of the cup that Jesus drank. <laughs> it was full of my sins once, but then he drank that cup for me, and therefore I no longer have to drink it because it had gone cold and tasted horrible anyway. And then he rose from the dead and saved me. Would you like to know some more? Like that, that kind of sentence. You can imagine that. I would love that. I would love to do that more. <laughs> As you can tell, I'm not allowed in Nero anymore. But <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a lovely way of thinking of it, isn't it? It's a way that actually you think, oh, wow, if only, if only I was like Brother Andrew. Well, Jesus, again, was better at this. He was better at asking questions, and he was better at answering them as well. And he often did both, answered a question with a question, which is another good way to follow him in the Gospels. But uh, let's get back to Acts. We've been distracted by Brother Andrew. The disgruntled... Jews, just disgruntled, sorry, Jews go to find Paul and Silas, and they can't find him. So instead, they pull out a man named Jason, and they shout in verse 6, as you know, they've caused trouble all over the world, they're declaring another king, his name's Jesus. And they state the facts long before they realize what is going on, and just like the Philippians, the Thessalonians try and use the Roman laws to their advantage by accusing Paul of having um, defied Caesar. And they know it will get him in trouble, so that's the reason that they do it. And the core of this, though, is that they've realized this gospel, this good news, cannot be rebuffed. It cannot be pushed back. It's been proven. Jesus has come. He's done everything he said he would do. And they turn to force to stop them. And there may come a day, church, where we face this. And we do well to consider it. We do well to think about it because there may come a time where we are oppressed where we are persecuted, where people realize that the good news of God and Jesus Christ cannot be stopped, and they'll try and squash it with force, as we know has been done historically. However, we also know 
that when God's people are oppressed and face opposition, the irresistible gospel of grace prevails. We know this. We know that when we face opposition, when people try and stop the Christians singing those songs about him, let's throw him in prison. What do they do? They just sing more songs in prison, as we heard last week. We will face opposition, but we will see breakthrough as a result. That's point number two. And lastly, point number three, very, very short. Commit to sharing the gospel even when there's a price to pay. The conclusion of this part of Acts 17, uh, verses 8 and 9, reads like this. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others postponed and let them go. Paul and his team, they've come to town. They've reasoned in the synagogue. They've been dragged out. They've caused Thessalonica, a city of 100,000 people, to be turned upside down. And then finally, someone brings about the peace. Remind you of a story you might have heard about? Well, Jason and the brothers are unlikely to be well-known in the book of Acts. You wouldn't refer to them very often. You wouldn't flick back and see what they did because there's not very many lines about them. But it speaks volumes. These new believers have welcomed them into their home, welcomed Paul and Silas into the home. And not only that, they then pay the price to the local magistrate to bring the peace. They come with the money in order to calm the crowd, to satisfy the magistrate. That's what post-bond means. When I read it, I didn't really understand. I was like, post-bond? What's that? Surely this is wrong. But no, it means basically to pay a price, to pay a ransom, to pay the cost, to bring about a guarantee that there would be no more disturbance of the peace in Thessalonica. Jason pays it along with the other believers, and Paul and Silas go free. <laughs> it's the gospel all over again. Jesus pays the price. We can go free. Jason, a new believer, pays the price. Paul and Silas get to leave Thessalonica at the end. He commits to the gospel, to sharing the gospel, even when there's a price to pay. The officials would have gone, why are you paying this for them? You just met them three weeks ago. What is the, what's compelling you to help these guys out? He would have had a chance to witness. He would have done a little sermonette in a sentence, maybe. <laughs> Who knows? But that's what he did. And we must do the same. Even when there's a price to pay for sharing the gospel, for witnessing, we must commit to doing it. So in summary, cover these three points. Get a grip. It's time to go and find those people of peace. To start the conversation, to reason with them, to listen. Explain the gospel, if you get the opportunity, of why Jesus' sacrifice was necessary and his resurrection so powerful. Prove it using Bible verses or historical references and then just proclaim it. Jesus is the Messiah. Point number two is we will face opposition, but we'll see breakthrough. And it's inevitable. When people realize the gospel can't be stopped, they'll try and stop it. They might use force. However, we know that under great pressure, new believers will be born again. And point three, commit to sharing the gospel when there's a price to pay. For some people here, it might be the time in your life to bite the bullet and invite someone to church on a Sunday. To ask them, what they believe or whether they've actually ever had the gospel explained to them. And there is risk and there is faith and there is a cost to being a follower of Jesus. But if we commit to sharing the gospel, we will see the fruit. If we believe God for it and ask him for the opportunities, you'll get them. Paul and his team continued the mission by preparing to share the gospel, even when it meant days of discussion followed by abrupt persecution. And we've got to follow in his footsteps 
and Jesus and go out there and share it. Now, if you're like me, you like something practical to do. I'm going to give you some practical things to do in form of application, and uh, they are these. Ask people questions that give you a reason to reason. Questions like, what do you think happens when you die? Or, has anyone ever explained the gospel to you? Or you can have a sermonette prepared, like Brother Andrew. Or if you're getting baptized in a few weeks' time, a couple of weeks' time, you can invite friends. They too can hear the gospel, and relatives. And other people are more vigil. You might want to sit down and watch an alpha video with them. Or perhaps you'll even consider this. Ask people if they would come to Alpha, even if it costs you something. You might want to invite them out to a coffee, have a conversation about it. You might want to do that. But all the events on the flyer I kind of waved at the beginning, they point towards another opportunity for mission and persuasion. And I'll talk, to them, talk more about them in the weeks to come, and I look forward to it. And the reverse is equally important. Praying for people, praying for God's message to penetrate people's hearts. It's just as significant. I'm going to pray, and I'm going to hand back to Tim. Father God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for the laughs and the fun and the joy that your word brings. And thank you that we see another visual, another parable of your parallel, sorry, of your gospel, God. We just see another person believing you, another person listening to you, another person reading the scriptures and being transformed. And we pray, please help us. Continue the mission for your glory. Amen. 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 That's it.